please turn with me to the book of Daniel chapter 10 as we continue in our worship this morning. Looking together at the book of Daniel chapter 10 here in just a moment or two. Someone once said to me, in life we're either heading into, in the middle of, or coming out of a conflict. That makes sense, doesn't it? We're either in the middle of, about to head into, or we're coming out of a conflict. In many ways, life can be described as, as moving from one conflict to the to another, it was President uh, Teddy Roosevelt that said that the, the best definition he'd come up with for leadership was maintaining enthusiasm from one struggle to the next. To think about life's conflicts, to try to bring some definition to them. Conflicts can be interpersonal. I'm having an argument with you, that's true. But conflict could be simple uncertainty of what's next. You know, we may have some graduates today that are a little uncertain. It can bring an internal conflict. It can even cause external conflict. We can have conflicts in terms of physical pain, some of which we'll pray for during our prayer of supplication at the end of the service today. Some of you are in pain chronically. We're glad you're here today, brother. It's awfully good to have you, Jimmy. It's good to have you in church today. And we pray for you. And we're glad you're able to be here with Susan. We pray for those that are in pain, those that are sick. That's a conflict, isn't it? It's a struggle. It's a problem. Loss. Betrayal is a conflict. You ever been betrayed? Somebody not kept their word to you or kind of went behind your back, or at least you thought they did, or maybe you've done it to them. Conflict with internal guilt, shame. Something at work, an injustice, inflicted on or done to. Being mistreated to the point of abuse. This is a conflict in life. They produce struggles. And even though this text today does not delve into specifically each one of those conflicts, it does paint a picture of how to gain support from God for life's conflicts. In fact, the title of today's sermon is Support for Life's Conflicts. Support for Life's Conflicts. Now, a little bit about this text, because we're going to drop into this text in Daniel chapter 10, and without a context, it's going to be very difficult to understand what all is going on, because Daniel 10 is the second half of the 12 chapters of Daniel. If you're divided up, you have some narrative texts in the first half, and then the second half, you have visions that Daniel has that coincide in terms of chronology with the stories of the first half, but they are not narrative. They're visions. They're apocalyptic visions. They're more like the texts that you often find in the middle third of Revelation uh, than they are straightforward storytelling. But today's text is kind of interesting within that because within Daniel 10, which is an apocalyptic vision on the main, there is a discourse. There's a back and forth, a conversation that's going to come in the second half of the chapter. And so you want to watch for that. 
because understanding the structure of the text and the type of literature that the text is will help you to not only understand but rightly apply the text. So Daniel 10 occurred about 2,555 years ago. In fact, I don't even know that I need to say the word about. I could just say that because the text is more descript and specific than so many texts in the Bible. We don't have to guess when the events of Daniel 10 took place because they took place in the 530s BC. It declares that God moved King Cyrus or Darius to have the polity to the policy rather to allow God's people to return to their home and to rebuild the temple. But that project 3 years into it has not gone well. Ezra tells the story, in the very first verses of Ezra, it tells the story, if you'd like to look at them later, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom and also put it in writing. Jews, return, rebuild the temple, in a nutshell. So here we are, two years after that decree, that allowance, that change of policy from the former superpower of the Babylonians, and we're coming into this fourth and final vision in the second half of Daniel. And Daniel is aware as a now old man, some say upwards of 90, he's aware in the 530s BC that things are not going as well back in his homeland as he had hoped. Now in 536 BC, we're going to read that Daniel is actually crying. He's mourning. He's grieved. He had been nicknamed Belshazzar by a former ruler, and that nickname is re-evoked in this text that we're about to read, probably just to indicate he's still in exile. And spoiler alert, as Christians, we're described as in exile as well. Different way, similar concept. Peter talks about it. We find in the Bible, to kind of fit the, the chronology of it all, Israel falls to Babylon Lamentations laments the utter destruction of that temple. And Jeremiah promises that 70 years later, Babylon would fall to Persia, and the Persians would allow this return. And that's exactly where we drop into in the text. In this apocalyptic text, you want to watch for landmarks in the setting, and you also want to watch for recurring language. In terms of landmarks, you're going to be instantly thinking about the great river Tigris, which is central in the creation narrative of Genesis 2, in Genesis 2.14. Ancient Mesopotamia had two great rivers that ran through it, and one of them was the river Tigris. Daniel has this apocalyptic vision, an apocalyptic vision, that's recorded in this text of Daniel 10, and he sees a brilliant man, linen clothes, gold belt, barrel body, lightning face, flaming eyes, bronze arms, bronze legs, and speech like many, sounding like 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 the rushing waters, like a multitude. You'll see that in, in this text early. This man resembled the man who comforted John in Revelation 1 with the belt and the legs and the words, but we'll consider that. The face was like a man in Matthew 28. There's commonality of language here with that, as well as looking at the major prophet Ezekiel, where there is messianic prophecy there. Daniel's job title in the 6th century B.C., 
was administrator. He also had something to do with interpreting dreams. He understood that skill in that century, but he was an administrator. He took care of things, and Cyrus knew that and put him in power quickly. In fact, he was high-ranking in this empire. So he had an entourage of people, a staff with him, and what you're going to find in this text is they don't see the same thing Daniel sees as a prophetic mouthpiece for God, and they desert him, and he's not only weak and frail after fasting, he's going to be all alone. They might say to me, Matt, why are you giving me all this, all this, all this? It's because when we read the text, I want, you, I want light bulbs to start popping so that we can then explain the text. Because my fear is when you read texts like this, if you just drop in, as I often say, parachute drop in, especially if you haven't had the opportunity to track with us in Daniel 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, it just, it, just, it just may not be there. I mean, there may be some nice devotional thoughts, but it may not be there. And another reason that I'm trying to give this kind of narration of the text overall before we read the text is not to in any way diminish your ability to understand the text. You have the Spirit too. But it's to do my job. It's to have prepared a meal that you can digest this morning. I'm doing my best to do that. I will fail at it, but I want you to meet me in the middle. I want you to understand I'm explaining the text overall before we read it because it really matters. And I want you to grasp something else out of this little narration of what's going on in this text before we read it. It has a setting, specific setting in history. Meaning that you can count that God is just as much specific in your setting, in your time in history, as he was then, two, five, five, five years ago. So there's something to this narration of this text, if, even if I labor it on for a minute. Daniel was knocked out cold by the vision that we're going to read about. He's just stunned, he's knocked out cold as often people of God are in Scripture whenever they have an encounter with the divine, something we call a, a theophany or a Christophany, meaning a sighting of God or a sighting of Christ. Sometimes people are pretty stunned even by angel-ophanies. simply means a sighting of an angel in Scripture. Daniel can't hardly conversate. He's wobbly-kneed. At one point, he's mute. He can't speak. He's comforted, as we'll see by the heavenly messenger. And this text, as we read on, you're going to see is replete with conflict, which is the reason for the theme of this sermon, is that the conflict of life is not lost on the biblical authors as they were carried on by the Spirit to write down the text that we now study. This brilliant man that appears in a vision, this apocalyptic text, appears to Daniel, tells him that there are things inscribed in the truth book, in Daniel 10, 21, you're going to see. So, so what a book. There's a, a titular angelic head named Michael that fights, and there's apparently some demonic influence in Persia. And you thought the Bible was boring, right? I mean, say what you want about the Bible, but boring is not the right descriptive word now, is it? Whatever it is, it can't be described rightly as boring, I don't think. So, so again, we're going to read the text in like 30 seconds, but let me just say this to refocus us after that narration. Some people say that it's everyone for themselves, that we have no recourse, we don't have support, but I say to you today that God is your support, and texts like Daniel 10 tells you so. And so as we read this text, I want you to look for the conflict that's going on and see that in Daniel 10 that we have support for life's conflicts through seeking God, seeing God, and sensing God. So the note takers in the room look at the first four verses 
and consider seeking God. And then verses 5 to 9, consider seeing God. And then verses 10 through the last verses that we're going to read in chapter 11, sensing God, which is an interesting aspect. Here is God's word, Daniel chapter 10, verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning, mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude." And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. Verse 10, and behold, a hand touched me, touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard. And I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me twenty-one days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. And I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days." For the vision is for days yet to come. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me, strengthening me, and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke with me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side except these, against these except Michael, your 
prince. Chapter 11, verse 1, in the first part of verse 2. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And now I will show you the truth. May God bless the reading of his word and minister grace unto those who hear. And now we're all ready to throw our hands in the air and go home collectively after a sigh. It was bad enough that the preacher chose to preach the second half of Daniel, but now this. I mean, what do we do with this, right? So I would contend to you, in, in, a, in a nutshell, that chapters 10, 11, and 12 cover the same vision, the fourth vision in Daniel, and that it's talking about the same thing from different vantage points, and that chapter 10 really tees up the vision, which the meat of it is in chapter 11, and Lord willing, that's next week. Back to our points, though. We are looking to have support through life's conflicts through seeking God, seeing God, and sensing God. You may have noticed those themes in these verses. So let's first consider seeking God. Just the first four verses, and let's consider them very, very briefly. This is the the setting. So chapter 10, verse 1 of what we've already read. King Cyrus's third year. You may remember we ended with King Cyrus or Darius, same person's first year. So we're talking about these three years, and particularly the third year. Things aren't going so well. Daniel's in mourning. And you look in verse 1 that this king of Persia... In the third year of the king of Persia, then Daniel has this vision, this revelation, this apocalyptic vision. Daniel's still in exile. He's got his, his Babylonian name, Belteshazzar. And he's saying here, by way of, of giving an overview of, of what we're about to read, the word that was given was true. It's a true word. And there was a great conflict. Maybe conflict in understanding the word. Certainly conflict in the world around the one to whom the word, word was given. And as we've noted already conflict in our own lives. It's part of the application. And he understood the word and he had understanding of the vision. So Daniel was able to understand as much as he could understand that which he needed to convey to God's people as a prophet. And so that's what we're getting now is God's prophetic word administered to us through one of God's prophets. We had the entire book finished in the first century AD because of the coming of Christ, his ascension. And the apostle John ended the canon of scripture with the book of Revelation in the first century A.D. But this was back before that 600 years. And for us, it's almost 2,600 years. And we're trying to figure out, why has God left us with this, this book, in this book of books, in this Bible? What's going on here? So verse 2, in those days, Daniel, I, speaking the first person, was mourning. And he was mourning for 21 days. And he particularly was mourning in such a way that he didn't lotion up his skin in the hot Persian region. And he did not eat delicacies. He was not filling himself with fine food and drink. He's back to kind of like chapter 1 where he's got a lifestyle that's pretty blasé. In fact, he's fasting now. And his skin would be cracked. He would be hungry. He would have access to the best of the empire. And he's not availing himself to it. Why is he fasting? Why is he engaging in this spiritual discipline of fasting? Well, some have said that perhaps he's sad that he didn't return with the exiles. He can't because of his administrative position, maybe because of his age now. He's getting up in in years. Remember, he was forcibly removed when he was just a a young boy, perhaps a young teenage boy, and brought here. And Daniel 1 describes all this information if you want to read about it. But he's maybe sad because he didn't go back. And and more, more likely than that, he's mourning because he doesn't hasn't seen the full application and implications of Daniel chapter 9, which if you go back and read Daniel 9, what you'll find is is that after the 70 years, the Jews are supposed to burst back onto the scene. God's people are supposed to rebuild the temple, and it's really kind of stalling out. And Ezra Nehemiah records the stalling out and the restarting of his project. So maybe he's sad about that. Maybe he's just bummed about the overall spiritual lethargy of people of the people of God. I mean, so many of them that went back weren't working very hard, and a whole lot of them were really cozy 
in, in Babylon, now Persia, and didn't go back. Uh, we record maybe 50,000 that went back. And, and so there's, these are some reasons why he's mourning, but the, the fact of the matter is his conflict within him and without drove him not to despise God, not to call into question the goodness of God, but to pray to God and to exercise what we have now classically described as the spiritual disciplines. One of the books that we have out at the bookstall that we encourage people to read, we commend, is a book by a teacher named Donald Whitney. The title of the book is Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. We've studied it no less than two times here in this church. Don Whitney's book outlines 12 spiritual disciplines. The disciplines are as follows. Bible reading, meditating on the Bible, prayer, worship, evangelism, serving, stewardship, fasting, solitude, journaling, learning, and perseverance. So some disciplines that he outlines within the book. Now, you may have noticed a few of those, and I rattle off that list, are things that Daniel has done or is actively doing in what we're reading in chapter 10. In fact, he's commended for these spiritual disciplines. Chapter 9, he prayed. God answered his prayer, chapter 10. In fact, it even says, I'm pleased to be answering your prayer. This is happening as an answer to prayer. So there's a discipline of prayer. There's a, a, a discipline of solitude. Like it or not, he's all alone now. There's, there's a, a discipline of fasting for sure. And I just want to make a little side note here. Uh, Jacob Feldmeyer has approached me about starting a cohort ministry of fasting in the church. And he's right over here to my left in the short blue shirt. If you want to see him after church, if you're interested, he's not experienced in it that much, but he'd like to try to do some more of it and partner with people that want to, want to exercise the spiritual discipline of fasting in the church. It's a wonderful thing. The Bible talks about it. Matthew 6.16 says, when you fast, not if you fast. And so fasting can be a, a spiritual, a spiritual fast can be a very helpful thing for the Christian. Uh, but Daniel's, this first point is, is really about seeking God. And we seek God through the spiritual disciplines. And in this case, fasting is, is headline in the, in, the, uh, in the text, I think. And so he's mourning, and he, he wants to get greater understanding from God. And so for 21 days, and I don't know, I mean, there's something there. Maybe 21 days is a good number. But for 21 days, I say that's how long it takes to make a new habit and get it to stick. That's what all the dieting experts say anyway. You tell by looking at me, I'm not really good at that. But 21-day challenge is, is everywhere. It's ubiquitous in, in, in culture, isn't it? So for 21 days here, we have Daniel, and all of a sudden, bursts through. Now, we think this is in the time of the Feast of and of the Passover time, Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And we think that this is, that's the context that it was, they had restarted these celebrations in Jerusalem. And from a distance, Daniel is recognizing that religious feast. Uh, just a couple more quick things from our first point. This is about having support for your conflicts in life through seeking God. So what I'm advocating is that like Daniel, you can find a model for yourself in prayer and fasting so that you can have help from God and seek help from God, not in sort of like a cosmic slot machine, but that God is pleased when we call out to Him. And the Bible says things like, if we draw near to God, He draws near to us. Or if we ask, we will receive. If we knock, the door will be open. The Bible says things in Amos like, seek me and live. The Bible is constantly urging us to draw near to God. So if, if your spiritual life has gone stale, Perhaps the spiritual disciplines are in order for you to draw back near, close to the Lord, 
through the means that He has provided for His people to do so. And hey, worship is one of them, privately, yes, but also publicly on the Lord's Day. So you're here. So you have that one. We're here today. Maybe for the 20 next, 20, next 21 days, maybe express your hunger, hunger to God more in, in, by engaging in one, more, one or more of these disciplines, being here. If you're to count out 21 days, it'd be, it'd be today, the 15th of May through June 4th, which is the day before Vacation Bible School. Nice little time markers there for us. So, so why not? Be consistent in the discipline of worship. Be consistent in your prayers. And consider some sort of spiritual fast, which I'm sure Jacob would be happy to help you with. Now, I want to draw us back to the text very specifically because I don't want to go veering too far from the intent of the text. I think so far we're fine, but I don't want to veer too far from the mourning and the fasting aspect into something else. So this first point, to sew it up, put a ribbon on it, we have support for our conflicts in life through seeking God, like Daniel did. And then secondly, we have support for life's conflicts through seeing God. Seeing God. That is constituted in verses 5 through 9. Now, I want to say something here about this very specifically. I'm not advocating that if you just pray hard enough, you're going to have an apocalyptic vision. That's not what I'm advocating at all. Uh, What I am advocating is that Daniel, through seeking God across time, he had habits of praying three times a day. God was well pleased with him. And through the ministry of the word to Daniel, and now through Daniel, Daniel is entrusted, like the Apostle John was, with a vision of a heavenly messenger that he could pass on to us so that we could better see God as well. And I think that's pretty helpful and pretty good. Now, remember, I told you that this is an apocalyptic vision that breaks down into discourse once we get to verse 10. This is the, this is the thickness of the apocalyptic right here. So look again at chapter 10, verse 5. He lifted his eyes, or he looked, as John the Revelator so often is recorded as doing in Revelation. He looks, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold. Talks about the description of this, of this heavenly messenger. At the end of verse 6, the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. Daniel's the only one entrusted with the vision. He winds up by himself. Sort of like Jesus wound up by himself in the Garden of Gethsemane. Sort of like Jesus fasted. Here we have Daniel fasting. Have him famished. And he's going to get hit with this, this vision of the divine that absolute flattens him. That's what, that's what we read about here. But notice the prevalency of words. I want you to notice that. Look at verse, the end of verse 6, as I've already said. The sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And then, then look at... Um, at verse 9, I heard the sound of his words. And as I heard the sound of his words, then he falls into a, a brief comatose state. So, so there is something to this whole speech act of God. There's something to the giving of the word that's being given to us by the, by the Spirit guiding these authors to write these things down. This is a biblical doctrine and understanding of how we get Scripture and why it is reliable. So this book is reliable, and this chapter is reliable, and we have this text because God intends for us to have this text. So when we go into biblical texts, we are sort of like uh, miners. We are mining into 
rocky soil trying to find precious jewels. And so when we're going through this text, that's what we're always doing when we're looking at biblical texts, and no less when we're looking at apocalyptic texts. Now, this church has been very kind to me over the years to allow me to continue in education, to continue studying. And, and one of the small things that we've gotten the habit of doing in the past few years is going to what's called a Simeon Trust Expositional Preaching Workshop. It's where a bunch of guys like me get around, like, sort of like nerds, and we talk about preaching. But we actually do it. It's a workshop. And one of the things that we do in the workshop as we prepare these one-page outlines and critique one another on whether or not we got the literary genre of the text correct as we were preparing to get to the authorial intent, as we were preparing to get to the gospel connections in the text, and as we were preparing to explain the text to the congregation, so what is the main point of the sermon? In this case, conflicts in life. They've really helped me over the years, and I'm trying to pay that forward. In fact, we have a lay preacher preaching at another church in town today, uh, Jonas Wyatt's preaching in another church because they had an emergency pulpit need, and he was able to fill that need. We're thankful for that, and we're praying for him. But what I want to, the reason I want to bring that up here is to, to let you know, well, thank you. But the main reason I want to bring it up is to say we're all on a journey here to try to understand what type of text it is. Is this a narrative? Is it apocalyptic? So that we can understand what the structure of the text is so that we're making right applications. It's not a beeline from reading of a text to this is definitely what the text means. There's a need to marinate and to study and even across time. So there's a, so there's a science behind it as well as an art. So this is what we're hoping to bring every week to you. And we don't hit it every time, but we're asking for you to understand what the goal line is. So it's not being moved. And this text, it reminds us so very much of Revelation 1 that we can hardly help but just to turn there and to read it in terms of the gospel connections. So I'm going to do that now. Revelation chapter 1, very first chapter of the last book of the Bible. And, and just simply verses 12 through 16. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven lampstands, golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters." In his right hand he held the seven stars, in his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, which we think about the word of the Lord when we think about the sword. The stars, we think about the churches, we think about the leadership in the churches, and, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. So, so it's hard not, I think it's hard not to make that connection with the language patterns. Now, that doesn't make Daniel 10 an airtight case for what we, what we call a, a sighting of Christ, or what the scholars call a Christophany. But it sure seems like it might be. I want to bring definition here. There was a the Got Questions guys online. They give a helpful definition. They say, a Christophany is a manifestation of Christ in the Bible that is tangible to the human senses. In its most restrictive sense, it is a visible appearance of God in the Old Testament period, often but not always in human form. A theophany would be of God. A Christophany would be of Christ. So some of the theophanies in the Bible are found on the pages of Scripture, Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, and Job, frequently the term glory of the Lord reflects a theophany, a God sighting, like in Exodus 24, or the pillar of a cloud has a similar function in Exodus 33, 9. A frequent introduction for theophanies may be seen in the words, the Lord came down, Genesis 11, Exodus 34, Numbers, and so on. So some Bible commentators believe that whenever someone received a visit from the angel of the Lord, this was in fact the pre-incarnate Christ. 
And that throws you into the middle of the question. Is this the pre-incarnate Christ or is it a, a sighting of an angel? Is it a Christophany or an angelophany, to use the technical terms? And I, I mean, the, what I would say to you is I'm not real sure. I, I, I tend to want to see this as a, it certainly prefigures Christ. There's no doubt about that. But is this an angelic messenger or is this the pre-incarnate Christ? I'm leaning toward the latter, but you can make up your own mind just based on the commonality of the speech here and some verses in Exodus. But you can make up your, your own mind with regard to that. But let's not forget what we see in these verses in total. What we see is we have support for life's conflict through seeing God, particularly through looking to Christ. As we often say in our church services, and as we often model in the way that we have prayers of praise in our service or adoration, the Christian life is not about looking at my own issues all the time, and not even about my own conflicts as much as God cares about that, but it's about lifting our heads up and looking to Christ. Daniel is flattened by a vision of God. He's flattened by a heavenly messenger. And this is a holy guy. I mean, Daniel's described as such. Daniel chapter 10, verses 5 through 9, are a wonderful reminder of how through the sound of the multitude, through the sound of the Word of God, through Christ the Word, we can see God more clearly. When you study the Bible, when you read it, don't just read it for... How is it going to help me fix a problem today? Although that's simply a really good way to think about the Bible sometimes. First, look to the, what you're reading as, what does this tell me about God? God is different than me. So I'm not always getting it. So what, what is this telling me about God? This is apocalyptic language. It reads more like a statue than it, than it does a person. So, so what are these attributes trying to tell me about the linens, the priestly work of God, perhaps, or the power of God in the midst of these conflicts, the brightness. What's, what's, what are we trying to get here? And so I want to pique your interest more than I want to give you all of the answers. Third point, and aren't you glad because there's only three, we have support for life's conflicts through sensing God. So we've talked about seeking God through the spiritual disciplines. We've, we've talked about seeing God through reading Scripture or reading the Word to hear how God is and not just how to fix a problem or a conflict, although that's downstream from seeing God more clearly. And now we have support for life's conflicts through sensing God. And aren't you glad that you can sense God? I want you to notice within this apocalyptic vision a discourse that sets up. Let your eyes glance down at your Bible if you have it open or, or listen if you don't. But he said in verses 11 and 12, and then I said in verses 16 and 17. And he said in verse 19, and then I said in verse 19. And he said in verse 20 through chapter 11, verse 2a. And I take that to be the he that's saying is the figure that was presented in chapter 10, verses 5 through 9. Now, there is a theory. I'll just throw this out there briefly. I'm only going to give 30 seconds to it. But there is, there is a few people that think that possibly you have a vision of the pre-incarnate Christ in verses 5 to 9. And then without any kind of introduction, you've got maybe Gabriel coming in to talk or some other angel coming in to talk in verses 10 and following. And that's plausible. Trimper Lawman's smart, and he posits that theory. So it's plausible. But it, I don't know that it has to be. They're trying to solve the problem of of how only Michael would be fighting and, and solve the problem of the back and forth and the war for 21 days. And I don't think there's as big a problems as some do, but that's, that's a point, okay? So that's a point. It could be that you have 
a pre-incarnate Christ, and then you have an angel. But enough of the nerdy stuff. Verses 10 to 21, let's take a gander at that within this dialogue and see what do we see in this discourse about the nature of the heavenly messenger and the comfort through sensing God through what is said and what's really being described through the repetitive language. So, so, so look and see. You can see it for yourself. I don't, have to, I don't necessarily have to tell you. But look at verse 10. It says that the hand touched me. That's sensory, isn't it? God made the senses, and he's concerned with them. Uh, look at verse 16. Just let your eyes glance down. You see, one of the likeness of the children of man touched me. He touched my lips. You see that? Or look at verse 18. Do you see that? Again, one having the appearance of man touched me. He strengthened me. And God's not just interested in, in strengthening Daniel. I mean, Daniel is writing for all of us. God's interested in strengthening his people. And all the vision was for Daniel alone, to be sure. It's also for all of us as we hear from God by his word. And so what we have here is Daniel sensing God, sensing the touch of God. But how many of you can describe having sensed or sensing the presence of God in your own life? Aren't you living witnesses to the fact that God is still sensory with you? Aren't you? I mean, do you not sense him? On the Lord's Day, now sure, we go through dried spells, but in family worship, do you sense them? Do, do you sense them when, when the Lord breaks through and answers a prayer? Do you take time to thank Him for it? Thank you for saving that person because I prayed for them. I don't know if it's my prayer or someone else's you answered or all of the above. I don't know how the answers work, but that person's born again, and I'm thankful. Thank you. You know? Or you prayed for a missionary and all of a sudden they got safe passage to where they needed to go. Thank you. Thank you. Do you sense him? And, and now some of you would say, you know, I, you know, Pastor Matt, I'm really struggling with this faith thing. And I'm going to need something more tangible than all this sort of uh, this uh, sensory, spiritual sort of stuff. And I, I'm listening to say to you, I don't get to write the book. The Bible says we walk by faith and not by sight. I mean, I'll pray that you have faith, but I'm not going to be able to give you sight on things that you're tapping your toe and demanding. I can't do that. And I'm sure, sure, not going to press down the aims of this pulpit as a simple messenger of God's Word by trying to create some kind of sense, some kind of sight. All I can do is preach to you the faith once for all delivered to the saints. But I can tell you unequivocally that... You can sense God too. You can sense God too. The Bible says it's by faith through grace you're saved. And it is a gift. It's not by your works so that you can never take any credit for it. You can never boast for it. You come to sensing God by faith. And I plead with you to come to faith. Because you will not overcome your skepticism with seeing more things. You will overcome your skepticism by having faith. Faith is our victory. Faith is what is needed. You need faith. And only God can put it there. And so when you come to faith, you're an answer to our prayer. Just like when I came to faith. When all the hard cases come to faith. We are going to pray this way and teach this way until kingdom come or we die because we are convinced that you can sense the Lord 
to, despite all your guilt and shame and all your sins and, and all of your questions and all that. I mean, we can do apologetics. We can talk about all that. But at the end of the matter, the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. You must come to faith. Faith gives you eyes to see, to see what's being said in this book. Glorious book. A continuous book written by 40 authors, 66 books, insane amounts of connections that had to come from God. At least that's what we see by faith. By faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. I wish time would permit an utter deconstruction and reconstruction of the last verses in this chapter. It would be a fantastic Bible study. I wish we had an hour just this and that and this and that and this. And that. I, can't, I can't hardly not give you two or three things. Um, uh, believers be very comforted that here, here we, have, um, we have greatly loved mentioned more than once. We have fear not mentioned more than once. Doesn't verse 19 sound a lot uh, like some things that Jesus is recorded as saying in the Gospels? You see it? Oh man, greatly loved, fear not. You, you know this, this, this shalom, this, this irene, this peace, peace be with you. Oh, for peace. Be strong and of good courage for comfort and sustenance for life's conflicts. This is our God. He's speaking to Daniel. He's speaking to us. He touched me. I remember singing in a little country church I grew up in, and oh, the joy that floods my soul. Something happened, and now I know he touched me and made me whole. Pastor Matt, that's got some theological problems in that song. Don't you know that? I know. I mean, I'm sure it does. I'm sure songs sometimes do. But from the heart, we do sense the touch of the Lord, don't we? We sense it time and time again. He touched me. One of these days he's going to touch us on the shoulder and call us home, isn't he? We're going to have run our race. Our life is going to come to a climactic ending. It's going to be the end of it. And on, on what basis will we gain heavenly entrance? How will we move from a crippling fear to a holy and reverential fear? On what basis will we have moved from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light? On what basis do you get in? Look at Daniel chapter 10, verse 12. And he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart, understand. From the first day you set your heart to understand, the first day you sought me, the first time that you saw me, First time you sensed me. First time you humbled yourself before your God. Your words. Your words have been heard. And I've come because of your words. There's a great cosmic battle going on. Verse 13 talks about it. There's some evil in Persia. Michael is the great archangel. He's associated with being the prince of God's people. There's overlapping conflicts, Lord willing, we'll talk about next week. 
there's more going on than just what's what you see anyway. So if faith has to come by sight, you, you got it. You got it backwards. Faith leads to sight. But how will you get in? How are you going to get in? You're going to get in because of what he has done for you. Or you won't. You will get in because of what he has done for you. Or you won't. Your only hope of eternal heavenly messages is through faith in Christ. That's it. So won't you put your faith in him today? Won't you renew your faith in him today? Won't you declare the preciousness of his glory and his gift to us in his son today? Let us pray.